yeah. Uh, as I, we're on the uh, board of uh, Chafer Seminary, we decided we needed to communicate to you pastors uh, what we're doing with the seminary. Uh, you people, uh, particularly the pastors here, are a, can be a, a vital part of the seminary because of the way we're changing the seminary model. And we want to brief you on, on how we are changing this and why, and why we're changing it. So we, uh, the, the paper that's passed out was uh, a position paper that explains what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, uh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, of course, we have uh, Dr. Dean, who's the uh, vice chairman. I'm the chairman. Uh, Clay Ward is here. Uh, Clay is a pastor. He's on the board. And uh, Mark Musser, Mark, is on the board there. And let's see, uh, who else? Um, Dan, Dan Ingram is the newest member of our board. So we have some who were unable to attend. Hal Hagemeyer uh, couldn't attend. We have Jeremy Thomas, a new member on the board, Pastor Fredericksburg Bible Church. And uh, we have... Um, uh, yeah, Paul Schmidtbiker, who is usually here at the conferences, and he's had a medical uh, emergency with his family. So we have a, a widespread board, and uh, we want to present this to you, this white paper, uh, as a position paper. And I want to introduce it by uh, kind of sharing George Meisinger for many, many years has uh, worked with Chafer Seminary. He worked with pastors back several decades ago in starting it. And I wanted to under, have everyone understand why we, uh, this was started in the first place. There was a concern among folks like uh, Arnold Furchtenbaum, George Meisinger, and others who were Bible church pastors who observed the fact that in our usual seminary programs, the curriculum was getting diluted. Courses were being added, like counseling courses, Christian ed courses, and the problem is there's a little thing called arithmetic. You only have so many hours available. If you're going to add courses, you've got to subtract courses. And the courses that were being subtracted were, some, in many cases, the language courses. And the problem there was that if you don't take enough courses in the language, you never get proficient enough so that when you are in the ministry and you're pushed for time and you aren't you don't have facility in the languages, you lose it simply because you don't have time. So you have to get up to a plateau of efficiency. So if you cut the language courses, you never get the the efficiency, and then you lose it. Uh, that was one concern. And another concern was that we are all dispensationalists. We all have a belief in a literal hermeneutic. And the concern was that this was also being diluted uh, with practically um, non and sometimes anti-dispensational views creeping into our seminaries. So that was, the, that was the start. But since the seminary started, we've had two other things happen. Uh, over the years, uh, particularly for about 20 years, we've had an economic trend in our country. And the economic trend is that real wages have not kept up with cost of living. The cost of living has far exceeded, and one of the costs of living is the cost of education. Tuitions are out of control. The student that goes to four years of college is putting his family in debt close to a quarter million dollars now. 
Now, the salaries haven't gone up that much, but the tuitions have for various reasons we won't go into. But real wages versus educational costs are gap. They're gapping. And so we needed to figure out how do we deal with the fact that many young men who want training and, and middle-aged people that want training, uh, advanced seminary-level training, what happens? Do they, how do they move their family, say, a 1,000 to 2,000 miles away, uh, give up their job, try to get some part-time work, and then at the same time pay tuition, uh, put their wives through the, the, the stress and the strain. And so the, dem- the economic demographic factor has caused us to rethink how we could cope with this. And then the, th- the other trend that's happened uh, more recently is the disease of language. Um, postmodernism and then the, the intellectual side of the culture is basically anti-language. Language is becoming very, very imprecise. And those of you who get uh, Bob Wilkins' uh, Grace Journal, you notice the last issue was, can you trust New Testament professors? And I would add, can you trust Old Testament professors? Uh, Because what's happened is that in the duplicity of language, we have evangelical scholars saying, well, I believe in the doctrinal statement of the school, and I believe in inerrancy. But what they're doing is they're redefining inerrancy. So now you can say you believe in inerrancy and not accept the fact that Genesis 1 is a historical narrative. It's not some sort of a framework. Or as one paper given at Dallas Seminary recently was that Genesis is just Moses trying to cope with Egyptian paganism. And so he's developing a cosmology to oppose a a sort of a polemic against Egyptian cosmology. Uh, so in other words, what we're saying is now Moses is replacing Egyptian myth with a mosaic myth. And so there's a tremendous shift going on here. And here's, the, here's part of the model that we, we try to create here. Here's what happens. Here's how schools get away with this. They're 1,000 miles away. The average pastor is busy. He doesn't have time to keep up with what's going on in the campus. He takes their word for it that we're training seminary students, so, so on. But the pastor's out of the loop. In effect, what the pastor has done is he's contracted out the education by trusting a remote campus. And the pastor's distant from this. And we've had some Bible church pastors get burned. I know of one who had their church spent thousands of dollars to finance a young man to go to a seminary. He comes back totally theologically destroyed. And as a result, that man, that pastor... Okay. That pastor now resents all seminary training. So I'm not going to send anybody to seminary. We spend thousands of dollars, and the the guy comes back theologically destroyed. So there's a bad taste in the mouth of pastors about what's going on here. So we've got to cope with that. So that's the background for the paper. So if you'll look at the handout, um, I've just kind of introduced it there. But let me uh, go on. And by the way, for those of you who aren't pastors... Uh, the reason Robbie had the handout uh, uh, printed and distributed 
is if you are not a pastor, if you can take this to... Uh, we're, having, okay, we're having issues. All right. If you're not a pastor, would you take this to your pastor? Okay? Take this and share it with your pastor at home uh, because we want to get the word out. And so this is new for us, but the first paragraph there after the contemporary situation, it, the first paragraph is devoted to pastors. So let's let's go through that first paragraph. Uh, we at Chafer Seminary, uh, we're well aware of the changing frustrations. Many, and the key sentence here, is many Bible-believing churches have long been in the habit of contracting out to various seminaries the training of future pastors and staffs. And the results of depending on this strategy have been mixed at best. The process of looking for good men to fill pulpits. And, and guys, pastors, you know, if you're getting older like we all are, uh, you've got to think about filling. You've devoted your life to raising up believers and training them in your church. And you don't want to retire or leave and have some person come in there and mess up your life's work. So start thinking about who's going to fill your pulpit after you. The results of depending on this strategy have been mixed. The process of looking for good men to fill pulpits in local churches typically is very long and drawn out and often disappointing with sometimes disastrous outcome. And here's an actual case happened here in Texas. One Bible church had to spend over two years interviewing two dozen seminary graduates before they could find one who would teach from the text more than once a week and present a clear gospel of grace. Now, that's the problem. That's one of the problems that has caused us to reflect on how do we cope with this background model. The second paragraph deals with students, and of course I've already told about that. Those who are married with families have to figure out how to leave their job, move their family away from their home church base of support to a distant campus for three or four more years, and even at seminary levels you're talking forty-five to $60,000 uh, in, in education costs. So we want to maintain our theological integrity we're doing it because of that. We're doing it because of the emphasis on it. So let's go down to the new model. We're now focused on developing future pastors and leaders in partnership with local churches. The Word of God doesn't address seminaries as an institution. The Word of God addresses pastors, addresses all elders. So we want to partner with the local churches. And what we're doing with this model, we're actually putting the education under the authority of the local pastor. And here's how we're going to do that. We're going to, rather than sending the students to an institution far away, two primary reasons, of course, is doctrinal fidelity, which I, I've already covered. And uh, the other one is the economics, which I've covered. But if you skip down to the on the back the next page there, uh, the paragraph that starts with in a very innovative way. So here's the heart of what we're trying to do here. Please follow this. In a very innovative way, we'll be working alongside pastoral staffs as their church's graduate level seminary training service. We think we have a safer and far less expensive solution that respects the biblical chain of command. Here are some ways it can work. 
For students who don't leave, uh, don't live near a church with a CTS learning center, I'll, we'll get into about what that is. CTS faculty will teach the courses online via various tools, email, teleconferencing, DVDs, MP3 files, and so forth. When a student applies for a course, he or she will provide their pastor with a CTS-issued form explaining the relationship between the seminary, the student, and the pastor or his designate Now, we recognize, pastor, you guys are busy. So we're not saying that you have to be there and to be a constant mentor with a student. That The seminary people will do the teaching. You don't have to do the teaching. What we're saying is that you want to be monitoring the thing so you are aware of what your people are getting. That controls your authority because now... If, if for some godforsaken purpose uh, you have some faculty member, we're going to try to keep control of this, but if you see things in that curriculum, because you're seeing the curriculum now, it's not something going on 2,000 miles away, you're seeing it, you're, you know the person, you're there. So when a student applies for a course, he provides their pastor with a CTS learning form explaining the relationship with the seminary, the student, and the pastor or his designate. In other words, you may designate someone in your congregation to just be a mentor, be a, be a help, be, you know, come alongside when they're needed. Then with a pastor's completed form, the student will pay tuition and any associated course fees to the seminary. Throughout the course, the pastor or his designatee will have full access to all seminary-supplied materials for his perusal and inspection. He will be encouraged to help the student understand, apply the coursework to his church's ministries. That's one other advantage. As soon as the training is occurring or while it's training, as a pastor, you're benefiting from it because now it's your person in your church with a spiritual gift, presumably, of teaching, pastor-teacher, and now that gift is being trained, and it's there. It's available for your use, and you can apply that person in, a, in some sort of ministerial work so you can the student can get the theory and he can get the practice and be, and under your, your tutelage. And so uh, he will be encouraged to help the student understand, apply the coursework. The pastor's designee will receive course and grade and comments from the faculty member. We want communication. In essence, what the model does, it brings the training of the seminary from a distant remote point into your church. The training is occurring inside your church with you there. And to make this a little bit clearer, I'm going to ask uh, Clay Ward to come. He's a pastor, and he's actually gone through this process with young people in his congregation, and he can share with you uh, how, how this happens. And then when we have Q&A after we are done here, uh, then you can ask uh, him or me or, or Robbie about things. Go ahead, Clay. Uh, yes, I'm Clay Ward. I pastor Clay Roma Bible Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And what Charlie's been describing to you, we have implemented at a certain level at our church. And I just would like to tell you how we did that and the flexibility that goes into that because I know, uh, I'm sure all you pastors here are busy. Are you? Yeah, I mean, I know busy is the new normal uh, for the way things go in our lives. And we're not talking about adding a whole new workload. 
uh, unless you want it. Now, that, that's, uh, you know, that's a possibility. But I would just like to share with you how it's been implemented in our church with uh, Pastor. Uh, Drew Smith is here with me. He's uh, pastored in the past. He's now in our church, and he's been through part of this as well. And then uh, a man in my church who... And one of them might be, but he's kind of scared to be that right now. But uh, anyway, he's getting the training regardless. And then a young lady, some of you know, Lindsay Warbington, uh, extension student with uh, Schaefer as well. And so I'd just like to share with you how this uh, happened. Uh, Lindsay and Tommy both came to me wanting to have uh, some greater understanding of Scripture than just, you know, in, in Bible class or in worship services. And so naturally, I said, well, Schaefer's got extension courses, uh, get going on it. And then they were like, well, that'll be good, and we just audit them. I said, why audit them? I mean, uh, you might pursue the degree here, so go ahead and do the full uh, shebang, and then if you do go all the way, then uh, you'll have something to show at the end of it. And so they, they did that. And there was three ways in which we've done this so far. Uh, one way, we had Ray Mondragon, a uh, professor with faculty staff with Schaefer Seminary, came and he taught hermeneutics. Uh, we met uh, in a home, actually, and just he taught the course, the first part of the course. And then he went away, and during the time while he was away, they had work to do, books to read and what have you, and then he returned to finish uh, the hermeneutics course. He also did that again with uh, the book of Revelation. Wasn't it Revelation? Yeah, the book of Revelation. So that was one way in which uh, the implementing this model was to be able to bring the faculty member to us and have him teach the course and get the one-on-one relationship with the faculty member. So that was one way of carrying this out. And I sat in on the hermeneutics. I was not able to sit in on the Revelation because my wife Amy wanted to do the Revelation course. And we have six kids, and for some reason we can't find someone to just take six kids at any moment. I don't, I don't know what the problem with that is. So I was not able to sit in on that course, but uh, Drew was able to sit in on that uh, course as well. And so that was one way of implementing this. Another was, again, just taking extension course. Uh, Lindsay has taken quite a few, and when she gets her coursework, uh, we get together. Uh, some, most of the time she'll come to the house for a meal and we'll sit down with the syllabus and the books that she's going to be reading and uh, just kind of get her prepped for what's going to happen in this course and be able to let her know what some some of the bumps along the road may be or what might in, be involved in the choosing her papers that she needs to write or whatever might be involved in that. And on a weekly basis as I see her at church or um, uh, in whatever relationship uh, we might be uh, involved in at the time, whether it's a church or uh, she's very involved with our kids, and so we could talk about these things. I remember when she was taking Charlie's Framework course, uh, one of the books was Nancy Piercy's uh, book, uh, Total Truth, which I had read. And I was glad of that because if I had not, I was going to need to read it just to be able to be familiar with it. And just to help her through the things. And same thing with Tommy. Tommy was doing great till, well, like most of us, till he hit Greek. And then all of a sudden uh, uh, he started struggling a little bit. But nonetheless, he, he, he was pl- able to plow through it. And so that was, that was the, the greatest benefit to me, at least, was working one-on-one with them as they were taking the courses and 
seeing what they were struggling with, and it was a lot of uh, sharpening on myself as well. It's almost like a continuing education course in that sense. But I don't always have the time to do that. And now I've got men in the church that have been trained through some things that if I have others who would like to do this, and, you know, like you say, stay busy, then I can delegate the responsibilities of helping through these things to someone else. And if they hit a big snag, then, of course, I'm always available to help out in that. And to me, it's the mentor relationship here that is taking place that is very valuable. In my undergrad work, I was uh, graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi in coaching sports administration. I know you probably never heard of that degree, but... Uh, it was really vigorous. But anyway, uh, the people I had the best relationships with were the professors that had their office doors open to you and you could talk with them, but they, they were mentors. And that's what you have going on here. You're almost serving as the pastor of the church, keeping oversight on the teaching, on the curriculum. You're almost serving as a faculty advisor to a member of your congregation whether they're going to be a pastor, whether they're just wanting to teach in the ministry that God's given to them in the, in the church or elsewhere. For example, Lindsay teaches Bible studies in the public school. She has a, a ministry with young people there. They meet after school, and she's able to teach them the Bible. And it's actually because she has a degree in Bible now. She's been asked to do a college course credit at the high school for a university uh, in the state of Tennessee that will take it as college credit. And she would not be able to do this if she had not gone through this process. And Tommy, same same thing. Tommy is now someone I can leave town and allow him in the pulpit, and I know it's going to be handled well because he's gone through. He's not. He doesn't think he's a pastor, but he is an excellent teacher. And so as a result of going through this process, training people in your own congregation, in your church, to fulfill whatever ministry that God has provided for them at a greater level. And at some point in time, even though Tommy might not uh, be a pastor, it may be finding out that he discovers that he is, he'll be ready. And so will anyone, anyone else, uh, uh, Drew as well, uh, will be ready for when that call comes. Now, another way in which we carried this out, was I, thankfully I was I was qualified to teach some of the courses and I taught theology 401. We did it over a 15 week period, and again talking about continuing education, getting prepared to teach the course and having to read through the papers and everything else. Uh, that's the busy part of the work, but that is a possibility if you are willing and able and qualified to do so. That is a way in which you can really have oversight of what's being taught in, in that process. Or, again, bringing a faculty member uh, of the seminary or uh, to your place. Or, probably the most practical and least expensive is the extension courses. Some of them uh, that we have already available on DVD. You could just set aside the time to watch the course together uh, at the church or wherever you might have it. And that's another thing. When, when Ray taught Revelation... Members of the church were there just to sit there and listen, not taking the course, not auditing the course, just there for their own edification. And that's always a possibility when you do it this way. And so it has benefits that go beyond just the particular ones you might be involved with in training. And so this is just one way in which we've implemented this idea. And we're not, we're, we're wanting to, again, put 
the oversight of what's going on at the seminary level back into the local church. And it's sort of a checks, balance relationship, pastors on the seminary, seminary on the pastors. And I think it's a, a healthy relationship that can keep things as far as our the purity of the doctrine that we hold so dear intact and at the same time be involved in the process of training our replacements. And sometimes we don't think of it that way. But like a parent... You're working yourself out of a job. Uh, pastor's doing the same thing. One way or another, you're going to be out of that job. Either you're going to step away or the Lord's going to take you home. And so we are in, in the process of doing that, and I think we need to think uh, more seriously about that and, and thinking toward the future with that. So as Charlie said at the end, if you have any questions regarding this particular aspect of it, I'd be glad to uh, answer those. Uh, thank you, Clay. Uh, Clay speaks from experience because he's been uh, involved in some of the different options. I've, uh, I'm in the process now of teaching one course at the seminary, completely uh, remote. I have one student in Alabama, one student here in Texas. Uh, we get together on a teleconference. We talk Q&A. We discuss among ourselves. We have assignments. We have quizzes, and we have papers at the end. Uh, and we also have something else that I've learned just by doing this. Uh, these particular students are full-time men that are employed in, in a corporation, and so they don't necessarily uh, have a, a time available to finish an assignment like they would have if they were in class and they had nothing else to do all day. And so some of these men say, gee, you know, my boss has got me on travel or my boss has, uh, we've got a big job due next week and so on. So we've found that by the online courses, we can be flexible. Uh, if the guy needs an extra week, we'll take an extra week. The whole point here is that we're not rushing to fulfill the thing. What we want to get is a finished product at the end and may take a little longer. But we have that flexibility now with an online program. So... I want to have enough time so you have some Q&A if, uh, so if we have time. But one of the things that I want to kind of pinpoint down here at the end here is that Chafer Seminary, probably every two weeks, maybe every three weeks, get a panic letter from a church somewhere. The pastor's leaving. Uh, the pastor has died. We've gotten those. Uh, do you have somebody to replace him? And the, and these letters come in all the time. I mean, we could fill plenty of pulpits, um, but we need students. And so the students are part of the part of the equation here, and the students are in your churches. So let's think about this: if you're a pastor and you have a group of believers that you're ministering to, uh, has the Holy Spirit given the gift of pastor teacher to someone in your congregation? Now think about this. Uh, the Holy Spirit distributes these. Spirit, we talk about spiritual gifts, but in practice, are we recognizing or even thinking about the fact that the Holy Spirit may have invested a gift in someone, and you, you don't really even know it because if you think about your own life, um, how did you become aware of a gift? Well, some, it, by exercise, and, and you found feedback, positive feedback and so on. You became aware of it. So think about 
uh, folks that are in your congregation that could be teachers. May not be pastor teachers, but they could be teachers like Lindsay is. She has a whole new ministry for the church, able to bring young people now into Clay's church by her influence in the public school. And that's settling up the, the demographics. One of the things about our Bible churches is uh, it's a lot of gray hair. And you've got to look at the demographics. Uh, do we have a balance here? We've got to have the bell-shaped curve. And if we're not getting young people, and, and that's hard given the fact that the average young person is going through K-12, that's 13 years of indoctrination in liberalism. And if you think about the courses that they're learning, uh, I often in framework, I ask the students, in all of your education, including your college education, Consider all of the stuff you've learned about history and politics. Have you ever once in any lecture over the 13 to 15, 16 years you've been in an educational establishment, have you ever once had a discussion of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law that was the basis of all Western law? I've never heard anyone say they had, they had a course or a discussion. Because, you see... Mount Sinai is considered a religious event. It's not history. The crucifixion was history. The resurrection is history. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, you could have been sitting there with a DVR and recorded his voice in Hebrew. That's Mount Sinai. That was unique. That was the most important event in all of history for society. Never taught in school. Now we're worried about the fact, oh, gee, where are we going to get our standards for right and wrong? Where have we been getting them in Western law for centuries? Off the Mosaic Code. Today, there's one, one Christian um, street fella. He goes out and he, he does interviews with students. Um, he asked them, this is UCLA and the brilliant students that go there and paying thousands and thousands of dollars each semester. Uh, could you name uh, any of the Ten Commandments? And most of them could maybe name one or two. Could you name ten brands of beer? They all could do that. So this is the product, and this unfortunately is the whole way of thought that we have to answer and we have to deal with. One of the things we do at the seminary is we advocate the framework course that I've been teaching for years. Why is that? Here's why. In theology, we have two terms for God's revelation, right? We have general revelation and we have special revelation. Is there any subject, mathematics, chemistry, physics, history, psychology, that is not part of general revelation? You can't name one. And if it's all part of general revelation, God's special revelation was given to interpret general revelation. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there were a whole bunch of trees. That's general revelation. God had to give special revelation to say, you see that tree over there? That's a no-no. They would not have known which tree, what they should behave about, which tree, because they could not fully interpret general revelation apart from special revelation. So all of our education today is about general revelation interpreted without special revelation. So this is, this is the, how people come to the gospel now. Now all of a sudden we're starting talking about Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? 
I have a niece. Carol and I, my wife and I, were sitting there in the house. This, this, our, our nephew come, our niece comes to the house. Nice girl, uh, honor student from UCLA. Um, and she walks in the house and she sees one of the pictures of, we, we, at the time it was the movie, um, Mel Gibson's one, uh, The Passion. And we had the advertisement for it. And she comes by and Carol keeps it on the refrigerator kind of thing. And she comes across and she looks at the refrigerator. She pauses for a moment and she says, Jesus, didn't something special happen to him? I kid you not. This is what the condition of the campus and education is. So our point here at the seminary is education, re-education is required. And if we are to train people who can teach the word of God in the next generation or the present one, that's what they have to cope with. I regularly interact with college students because I call them my cultural informants. Because I want to know what is going on in the college campus. And I have three or four students that are very good. They're, they're well trained in the framework. They know how to be courteous. They're not belligerent. But they also know the vulnerabilities of unbelief. Had a young man training at a well-known college campus under supposedly the Roman Catholic administration, Roman Catholic University. He goes into a class taught by a Jesuit. It used to be that Jesuits were the Pope's shock troops. They're the ones, of course, that introduced Marxism and Latin America as liberation theology and other useful things. But here he was uh, run, getting his doctorate, professing in this class. It was on something about contemporary American ethics and so on. So he had to take it because, you know, in college you have to have so many hours of liberal arts. So the first week, he decides that he's going to um, discuss the homosexual issue. And he says, uh, I think it was his second or third lecture, that, well, as Christians, the, we have to understand the Bible really doesn't address this. And, of course, uh, the student I work with had a, the six or seven classic references in Scripture. And he just raised his hand and says, uh, uh, Professor, he said, uh, I've been reading the Bible and it looks like actually the Bible does say some things about homosexuality and he went to give the references. Here's what the prof did in response. Well, I don't read the Bible. But now here's an interesting thing. That young man, because he had the courage and could ask the question, discredited the professor in the eyes of the other students. Because the other students came up after the lecture and said, this guy's lecturing and he hasn't even read the source material. What are we paying our tuition for? Yeah, good question. So these are the kind of narratives that are occurring. And I'm going to have here this young man, uh, we have some other students that are doing this, and I'm going to have them explain to the older people in our congregation what is going on in the college classroom. Because the parents don't have a clue. The parents are the credit card owners. The parents are the ones paying the tuition in most cases. But they, they're not paying attention. Here's why. Not only is tuition costs escalating in the universities, but there's duplicity on the part of the administration. Here's what happened on that campus. And I had the, the fellow photograph it, so we have the evidence. He went around, he took pictures of all the uh, 
programs, the pictures of the transgender bathrooms and so on that are openly advocated on the campus and so on, the co-ed dormitories that's been going on for a while. And so he has all these, these pictures. And then they have alumni weekend. Guess what happens to all the signs? Why are the signs taken down on alumni weekend? Because they don't want to lose their money. Exactly. So this is the quality of ethics that managers of our college campuses have. So that it's just you all are aware of this, I know, but I'm only emphasizing this is because that is the culture in which we have to minister the word of God. And we shouldn't be totally we shouldn't be discouraged by this. American culture is going back to the way it was in Rome, you know, in prophecies we've been talking about the revived Roman Empire for years. Well, what's we're saying? We're seeing Roman paganism. And the early Christians had it worse than we do. We American Christians have had a blessed time for two or three hundred years and we're kind of spoiled because we've had it easy. It's not going to be easy. We're going to revert back to the norm. You know, can you imagine yourself in eternity? Someday you're sitting next to a saint of the second century under Diocletian or uh, one of the uh, Nero or somebody, and uh, they say to you, oh, what was life like in America? And you know that they're the martyrs. And uh, you know, I think I would feel, well, you know, we just kind of sat around. Um, <laughs> so that, that's our difference historically. So anyway, long story short, we're trying to cope with that with a curriculum, but we're also trying to cope with the culture by bringing it inside the local church. So the Chafer Seminary is an educational tool that pastors can use. So I just challenge you pastors to think about how the Holy Spirit has administered any gifts in your people that you need to think about training them to use that gift that the Holy Spirit has given them. And I want to close with one point here, and that is CTS needs three things by your support. We need your prayers. We need funding. But most of all, we need participation in the program. We need students. We need to uh, We put all this on the line, and if we don't need it, we won't have it. So we're going to offer the model uh, to the community of Bible churches and hope that this will serve your needs and you'll take advantage of it. Clay, if you'll come up here, we'll have uh, some Q&A now. We have plenty of time. Um, so go ahead, any, any questions? Yes. yes, sir. The first question that comes to my mind uh, would be tuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the, the, you mentioned the cost of uh, yes. education. And uh, it is... At least in my church, I, I am training two pastors in my church in Spanish, of course, but that's a, an additional burden. But uh, the tuition is very important. Uh, a lot of people that are going to church yes. perhaps don't have that much money and they would like to do it. What kind of a tu- tuition? Yeah. Um, Ray, can you tell us uh, what the tuition right now is? Something. Uh, yeah. I think it's $150 for credit hour, which yeah, is very much less than anything you pay at a regular campus. Um, and we are also thinking in terms, and we're exploring this, as we develop models with churches. For example, we have several churches that are quite regular in their support of the seminary, 
and we're thinking of giving tuition breaks for anyone coming from that church. Uh, Tyndall Seminary has been doing this, and we, we like kind of like their model. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Thinking of an individual in our church um, uh, who's a, a veteran, uh, 11 years in the military, uh, and has some VA benefits in terms of education. In fact, he was just talking to me about going back to school to take advantage of the fact mm-hmm. that the, he's got that the benefit. Is that something that is uh, you could work with in your program? That- we we are trying to we are exploring the VA thing. What we have to do to qualify for that, uh, I can't answer that as far as right now, but we are looking at that because we've had people ask that question. Anyone else? Okay. Well, anybody uh, got a question for Clay? Clay's been through this as a pastor, so he can kind of give you uh, how he did it. Yes, sir. Uh, it's more of a general question, I guess. Uh, when you uh, when you decide that you want to to take a particular course, like what you were talking about, whether it's theology or whatever, eschatology, are you um, does that become a, a in other words, are, is there only one format for that when you're doing a remote? Are, are you receiving the package and DVDs? And Yeah, we're trying to standardize it. Different professors do it slightly differently, but the idea is basically the same. Materials are sent to you. Uh, it's, it could be an MP4 with video or MP3, that, mm-hmm. uh, email, uh, notes, that sort of thing. It's sort of many universities are doing this. It's not you know, sure. something unique to us. Is that, but yeah. go ahead. is that is that a is so it's specific to the instructor as to how they do it? Is that yeah? We're we're standardizing it okay. pretty much, but um, it's 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 doing the same thing. Uh, different professors have developed their materials, and as we transition to the model, you'll see it more and more uniform. But um, it takes a lot of time to do these materials. It's taken me for the first half of the framework uh, to deal with the video because I had video, which gets more complicated with PowerPoints. Uh, it took uh, about uh, 15 months to put that material in a packageable form, which it now yeah. is. Which, which you only have to do once. Correct? Which I only have to do once uh, <coughs> unless some theological uh, heresy rises that we have to readjust. Yeah. The, I guess the other question is, we've got so much technology now to do um, teleconference calls and whatever. I'm thinking of the live streaming from the classroom. Is that something that's possible? Yeah, if there's a classroom. But if you have remote, you may have students at different places, so there's no yeah. one classroom. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm, What I was envisioning was that if, you, if within a community, mm-hmm. so we live south of Austin, so if within that community you had a bunch of people that were yeah. interested and they only had to travel – a short distance, say, to go to a church or wherever to meet, and uh, I'm just kind of brainstorming yeah. the idea. Yeah. And um, then you had the the whoever was teaching the class could then be talking to 
you know, a yeah. group of well, ten sure. people, let's say, yeah. or five people. Yeah, the, the model is open to all that. That's oh, okay. why we we made that the move that model in there because we're aware of the technology that's developing. Okay. Yes. Right, One more question. Uh, Charlie, uh, I'm a physician, but before I was a physician, I was an educator in higher education, and I've had a couple of observations. It, it seemed a hundred years ago, medical education in this country was terrible. Uh, most physicians did not get trained uh, as they are today, educated and trained. Uh, they simply apprenticed themselves to some do- uh, physician who was very poorly trained himself. Some of you know there was a Flexner report that came out in the 19-teens that changed all that. It seems to me that medical education today in this country is probably some of the greatest education there is anywhere. Back a 100 years ago, seminary education had the quality that medical education has today, and it's gradually deteriorated for one reason or another. And I think there's a lot that seminaries can learn from a medical education. The second thought I had is the, the problem of financing this education. Most people who, for instance, go to medical school, to use that as an example, borrow a lot of money. It cost me somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars to get my education. But they're borrowing that money from the government. It seems to me that the churches could create a fund if people needed to borrow and then pay that back, and it would be a lot less expensive and a lot less onerous. It's just an idea that I've had floating around in my mind for a number of years. Well, uh, interesting you bring that up because with this model, uh, if you say had uh, two or three folks in your church uh, and say one of the three or somebody, they, 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 had, they had a real problem. And uh, we've lowered the cost as much as we possibly can. Uh, the faculty really isn't getting much here. Uh, this is not big box. Uh, but if there were something like that, uh, the local church could step up to the person. It puts it into the bailiwick of the local church. Um, so I think with that control, the problem with these programs, we're seeing an ethical collapse here all across society. And every time you create these programs that are multifaceted and uh, re- three or four levels removed, you've got a problem of m- monitoring the behavior uh, and so on. And that, of course, now we're talking management costs. So we're trying to simplify this, get back to where the learning takes place with the individuals. And one of the advantages of the model is that the person who is doing the training, getting the training, is there in the middle of a an active ministry. So no matter what the course is, you'll never, in, in a seminary course, learn stuff that you'll encounter. It's like medical stuff. Um, I'll never forget the first wedding I had. Um, we have practical theology courses in seminary, and they tell you how to do weddings and how to do funerals and so on. And so down comes the bride. She gets in front of me, and she's shaking. She's holding her flowers, and she whispers to me, Pastor, I think I'm going to be sick. They never covered what to do <laughs> in, the, in the practical theology course. And so I, I, yeah. So those are the things you run into. And, and the other thing that we're running into, of course, is people increasingly within 
our our area of ministry come out of this culture that is so terribly confused and so remote from the Word of God. You've got this bridging thing that has to happen. And part of the bridging has to be that they're there uh, among real Christians living the Christian life because a lot they, they have to see it. Uh, Ravi Zacharias has recently said something that I thought was very, very interesting. This is a culture that listens with their eyes and thinks with their feelings. And what he's getting at is very visual. Everything is very visual. So we're thinking, we're, we're perceiving and, and sort of hearing with our eyes. And most of all, we are um, handling our thinking with our emotions. There's very little serious thinking going on. And that little story I told you about the Jesuit professor, I could tell you four or five other instances. I could tell you about a gal in our church who had a four-year scholarship. She's a great musician. And uh, she was taking a music theory course. And the professor was making this point that there is no universal structure in music, uh, that there's no such thing as universals. And so she went up to him. And she said after class, in a polite, courteous way, she said, um, Professor, isn't it tr- true that what you just said is a universal statement? <laughs> and again, he got the sa- she got the same response that this other young man got. I never thought of that. What are these guys thinking about? These are fundamental questions, and they're not being asked. So that's, that's the situation. And, and folks, the gospel is cognitive. The gospel is not a mystical feeling thing. The gospel depends on somebody realizing things and able to think through things. And that's the struggle we're going to have. So preparation is going to be really key. And for you pastors, just please think of who is going to stand in your place. Who are you grooming to take your spot? You've got to start thinking now. Because I, it's heartbreaking to hear some of the, the letters that come back to the Chafer Seminary office. We've lost our pastor. We didn't expect. He had a heart attack. He's dead. Now what do we do? They don't know what to do. Nobody was being trained. Nobody to step into the pulpit. And uh, so that's, that's what we're trying to deal with here by putting this into the local church. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. My name is Ruby Dixon, and I teach Bible study over at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church to a group of people who are both disabled and non-disabled. Last year, we started a ministry encouraging churches to become more inclusive of people with disabilities through the outstretched hands of Jesus Christ. I want to commend you today because it seems that maybe we're getting back on the right track of educating people from the Word of God. I wanted to ask you about the classes. Are the classes inclusive of people with disabilities? And if the teacher who is in the facilitator of the class has to have a degree, and um, another thing, if um, you are prepared to teach people with various disabilities such as blindness. I myself am totally blind. Many people with disabilities want to become pastors, teachers, and ministers. 
the, we are encouraging schools, colleges, and churches to become open doors to this community of people. And I came here today. I am a pastor of this Bible study class, but I want to, to like I say, commend you. Thank you for this great study. I want to be a part of it. Thank you. Okay, ma'am, you did raise some key questions, but I think, again, this model is far more conducive to people with disabilities than going off to a campus 2,000 miles away uh, in a strange environment. This keeps the people in a familiar environment where they can they know people. There's no strangers here. Uh, now, the materials... Uh, if they can read and so on, the, the issue of blindness would be a, would be a problem. We haven't got a way of around that right now, other than maybe audio files uh, for lectures. Uh, but I think the model is flexible enough to easily cope with that problem far far in a far more efficient way than the classical bricks and mortar campus somewhere remote, without the trauma of of moving. Yeah, uh, Charlie, um, in our church in Albuquerque, uh, we're going through the succession planning process right now. In fact, uh, we've been going through it for a couple of years, and uh, our pastor's been our senior pastor now for 40 years. Um, and I guess what the, I, I want to exhort the pastors here to uh, because uh, this succession process is not something that's short. Uh, it involves a lot of different facets, not the least of which is the the person who is ultimately the successor uh, has to develop a relationship with that congregation. And that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. And the other thing is that, and so that, that successor presumably would have some opportunities to get in front of that congregation and do some of the teaching and carry some of that load. But there's also things related to the pastor that's going out, and that has to do with uh, sometimes their financial future, uh, you know, helping them prepare uh, for being able to live uh, beyond being the pastor. So the succession, and, and then also you get into the succession process sometimes, and it turns out that the person you thought was going to be the successor doesn't turn out to be what you thought. So you have to start over uh, to some extent. Uh, and so the process oftentimes takes maybe somewhere between five and ten years to actually do. So you've got to get started on it. Uh, it's just not something that happens overnight. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. One more. Okay. We didn't introduce Jim earlier. Jim McGillivray is from Albuquerque. He is also a board member and very active in his local local church, too. So just want to make sure everybody knew Jim. Okay. Well, uh, our uh, lunch is going to be ready shortly. And so uh, is that right? Okay. All right. Well, are there any other questions? Or we can break early and you can come up and talk to us if you individually have some questions. Okay. Well, I've been asked to uh, ask the blessing for our lunch. And so let's uh, do that.
Father, we thank you for your common grace that you bring your reign on the just and unjust alike. You bring the sun on the just and unjust alike, but that you also care very much for the body of Christ on earth. We care for you. We are appreciative of your design of the universe around us, of our environment. And we think even of the very food that we eat, that uh, your exquisite design of plant life to transform dirt into nourishable food that is then eaten by animals and so on, and we go up the chain. And when we eat uh, meat and we think of the fact that there's a, a revelation there of substitutionary atonement of an animal giving its life for our life. And so surrounded as we are by your design, we rejoice in you as our Savior, as our Lord, and we look forward to the fact that each day you move history one day forward to its grand culmination. Thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.